The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It's my great pleasure today to be speaking to Riel Miller, Riel is one of the world's leading authorities on the theory and practice of using the future to change what people see and do. He is recognized as an innovative and globally experienced project initiator, designer, and manager. He is widely published in academic journals and other media on a range of topics from the future of the internet to transforming strategic processes. He is an accomplished keynote speaker and facilitator and has worked with international and national organizations to put cutting-edge ideas at the service of transformational change. Riel has worked as a senior manager in the Ontario Public Service in the ministries of finance, universities, and industry, and for 13 years in total at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, in Paris, in the Directorates of Economics, Science and Technology, Education, Territorial Development, and in the International Futures Program. In 2005, he founded an independent consultancy, Experiatox, which means knowledge through experience, to advise clients on how to use the future more effectively. In 2012, he was appointed the head of foresight at UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. He is currently finishing a book, Transforming the Future, Anticipation in the 21st Century. Welcome to Precipice Real. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Um, so to begin, you you are in an unusual field. Uh, your work is something that a lot of people might not know about. So I'm wondering if we can start there. I've I've heard you, ri- uh, I've seen you write and speak about what you call futures literacy, and I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about what that means and and what your work entails. Uh, Thank you for that. It's uh, certainly something that's uh, dear to my heart these days because uh, it's a pioneering uh, effort underway to actually try and map the different ways that people use the future. And when I say use the future, uh, we have to take that under sort of advisement and, and think about it sort of carefully because using the future is not a familiar term uh, and it really it, it might 
in some ways conjure up the notion that, you know, like we use a hammer or uh, use a screwdriver to do something. And that's partly what it's about because we do use the future. For instance, we use the future to schedule this interview. Uh, we imagined some point in the future where we would talk and that we'd be able to get all the different bits and pieces together to be able to have a conversation. And so we use the future in that very practical way all the time. But we don't think very much about what is the future uh, as a kind of what is the future. And that's where where the idea of futures literacy is a bit uh, confusing because there's this illusion that we sort of depend on that the future sort of exists it's out there uh and that it'll 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 come to us or we'll go to it and, and it's there but of course we all know that there's actually no way to visit the future and the future doesn't exist in that sense and therefore the only way that the future actually enters into our current world into the present uh, is through anticipation and our imagination when we're talking about conscious anticipation conscious use of the future uh, so it, it's a it's a um, futures literacy is really a new area, and it's literacy because it's a capability, a competency like learning to read and write. So the idea of futures literacy, the idea of using the future, the idea of mapping how people use the future, all these things are relatively new areas for research and for practice. So, how did you come to this work? Because clearly, this is not something if you go to a career counselor that's on the list. So, so how did you find your way to something um, that, like the future, didn't yet exist? I think it's you know it's it's the it's the the the, the kind of two parts of that uh, that are that I think are always the case. Uh, is that partly it's it's the context, it's the history. I think that one of the reasons that the future is becoming uh, uh, a point of deeper and new research and deeper and new practices is because of the context we live in. Uh, and we, we can get to that in a, in a moment. But then, of course, the other part of it is, is, is just the emergent nature of the, the universe we live in, which is that I followed a journey that started uh, with an attempt to uh, see how we could think about the future, meaning I was working in economics, my degrees in economics, and I came to Okay, And they were using the future at the OECD uh, to give people a sense of security and certainty about the economic future. But we knew, as technocrats, as, as economists, uh, and, and the politicians all knew that those futures were really uh, very uncertain and that there were huge errors in what we were predicting. Um, and so I became very interested in this illusion that seems so essential for people that they need to know the future in some way as something that, that's certain uh, and, and can comfort themselves against uncertainty. And that seemed to me to be, to be a, a rather uh, strange position for us to, to, to be living in, a strange way to, to, to try and uh, use our, our ability to imagine, to imagine essentially an illusion of certainty. And so that started over 30 years ago and wondering about how the future enters into our uh, sense of security, our sense of identity, um, our aspirations, and also how we construct the, the, the important question about 
change that continues the world as it is, so reform to improve the world, and change that actually moves us outside of the existing way of doing things, so maybe paradigmatic or institutional or, or social change uh, that takes the form of transformation rather than just continuity. So those issues all seem to me to be wrapped up in the question of how we use the future. And then as luck would have it, I was invited to uh, construct and design and and, and run a, a two-year process to think about the future of community colleges in Ontario. And that was when I confronted the, the, the practical issues of getting people to think about the future. And I also discovered how unfair it is, uh, generally speaking, to ask people to think about the future because it's, it's like asking you know, somebody who's not a painter to start painting. And they go, oh, you know, I can finger paint maybe, I'll do stick figures, but it doesn't look very sophisticated uh, and it doesn't really reflect my underlying thoughts uh, because I don't have the technical capacity. And so for the last 30 years, essentially, uh, I've been designing processes whereby people can use the future, but use the future with an awareness that they have anticipatory assumptions uh, and that there are different kinds of future uh, to be used, different ways of anticipating and different kinds of anticipation. And all of that has, over the years, contributed to the development of this concept of futures literacy as a capability, which is also connected to the Senian idea of freedom, meaning the capacity to be free, and to the social science work that's been going on and also the natural science work in complexity, uh, emergence, and novelty. So all those things sort of converge in that emergent way that I think reality almost always unfolds, uh, and uh, that's that's what brought me to where I am today. You mentioned this that, that asking people to use the future or think about the future is like asking people who aren't painters, okay, go paint. Which, which makes me think that you are in relationship to this as a, as a skill set or a capacity that can be developed and built and that actually requires some kind of practice. Um, and, I, and I wonder if you can speak to that in particular because it's, it's hard for me to understand. I keep collapsing into an understanding of using the future that would mean coming up with one that is quote-unquote right and then controlling things to get there. And I know that's not what you're talking about. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about what are the capacity you might be able to build if it's not getting to be better predictors who are more capable of controlling what happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, that's a very good question, Annie. I mean, I, and, it's, and it's, there's a lot of pieces actually to the answer. I mean, on the one hand, um, because, because right from the get-go, like when we're babies, before we can talk, we uh, incorporate anticipation into our basic behavior and our basic perceptions of the world. So we anticipate that if we cry, we'll get fed. Um, we anticipate if a ball is rolling along a table that it will continue to roll. Uh, and we can, we can anticipate that even before we can talk. And so preparation and planning, uh, which are how do I set a goal and get there, which is the way you articulated uh, the idea of the future, is so uh, deeply ingrained and so essential to our survival that it's, it's, it's one, on the one hand, not something we think about, and on the other hand, something that we, we can't really think about detaching ourselves from. So I've, over the years, come to realize that the basic way to get people to start becoming futures literate is to get them to do it. 
to begin to use the future, to manipulate the future, to become aware of their own anticipatory assumptions. And, and the, that way, the, 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 the sort of visceral and also learning cycle aspects uh, of this process are, are, are put forward in a way that's uh, compatible with people's cultural and, uh, and human condition. In other words, this is another aspect of all of this, which is temporality, how we approach time. Uh, but also how we approach power, causality, uh, uncertainty, fear. Uh, all of those things are very context and culturally specific. And it's really not the same when I do something in Ulaanbaatar or if I do it in uh, Montevideo or if I do it in, in uh, uh, Johannesburg or, or if we're doing it here in Paris. Uh, and, and in fact, it's not the same if it, even if the, you know, it's sunny outside or it's not sunny. In other words, you have to design the process uh, in such a way that, that the collective intelligence of the group uh, which allows people to negotiate meaning and sense amongst themselves, allows them to 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 feel and 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 be in touch with their own way of anticipating, and then gradually, once people realize that they can become empowered uh, to to use the future in different ways, because they come to understand how they're constructing the future, which is essentially their imagination. Um, you can you can begin to move on to different levels of mastery and different levels of uh, using the future for engineering or for emergence, uh, and that's and that's uh, really one of the fundamental uh, aspects of becoming more futures literate is to be able to distinguish between the engineering side uh, or the the kind of the causal uh, planning side of using the future and using the future to understand how you're perceiving the present uh, and that's a, that's the, the the big step and it's a sort of flat world to round world shift uh, that, that, that takes uh, time for people to practice I'm wondering if you have an example in mind can, do, from all of the work that you've done can you give an example of of a sh- that shift from that engineering way uh, to the emergent? Yeah, I, I like I like to talk about. I mean, one of the one of the, the examples that seemed most powerful in the last couple of years has been was a, was a project we did in Sierra Leone, in, in Freetown. Uh, it was before Ebola, but uh, obviously uh, after the Civil War, um, and it was about the transition from youth, adolescent to, to adult. How that how that takes place, and the idea was that we would get a group of people there to think about the future of the transition from being a young person to being an adult. And when we think about those things, we often project a future that's modeled on the past, and we think about the rites of passage and the transitions uh, that would accompany that process, and we say, okay, let's say that we wake up, you know, all of a sudden we're transported to 2050, uh, 10, 15, 20, 30 years later. And you're in that world, this world that's in the future, and you're dealing with this question, you're addressing the question of how do young people become adults? And initially, what we, the process, the learning process, which moves from tacit to explicit, involves people saying, well, this is the way I've been thinking about it, and this is what I expect will happen. And so they talk about their expectations and what they think is probable. And we, in the process, it's important to get people to distinguish between what they hope will happen, what they think would be good, or what they fear, what they think would be bad, which have to do with their values, and what they predict, what they think probabilistically, what's most likely 
And the way in which you begin to talk about those things is different in different places. So again, in the Sierra Leone case, we got them to singing, music, dancing, uh, and the, the, the rituals associated with respecting the past when we're going to think about the future. And that's particular to that time and place. And it provided an entry point for them to say, look, I'm assuming certain things about the youth uh, to adult transition, which actually make no sense to me. And so then you move on in the process to saying, if I'm going to assume uh, some uh, form of you know, getting a driver's license or graduating from high school or uh, getting married or uh, getting my first job are part of the transition from being a young person to being an adult. In the context of Sierra Leone at the moment, none of those things make a lot of sense. And so projecting those forward into the future also doesn't make a lot of sense. But what does make sense is that we're trying to reconstruct relationships in the current context where we could imagine a different way of doing them. And having responsibility be something that's intergenerational, but also connected to the idea of a much more ecologically, socially grounded creation of well-being. And so once they start to reframe their image of the future, they start to see aspects of the solidarity, the interdependency, um, uh, even the rituals, uh, whether it's rap or street art that are part of the emergence, potentially, of a different way of doing things in the present. And by giving up, in a sense, the projection, the extrapolation, or the convergence, or the imitation uh, to the uh, ways in which the youth-to-adult transition could be imagined to occur in 2050, by abandoning that, and then by reconstructing it under others' assumptions, new aspects of the present come into focus, and new aspects of the present can be invented. And in that sense, people tap in to the current conditions of emergence and complexity and appreciate more the richness of the present. And that way they're using the future in a distinctly different way uh, in order to better understand now. And in fact, there's not really any importance to the future other than its role in helping us understand the world that we currently live in better. So let me see if I understand. It, it sounds like what you're describing is that by exposing the assumptions that people might have about the future, which often are projecting how things were in the past into the future as though it will be the same, by exposing that and then giving people an opportunity to say, okay, if these things are not actually accurate or true or how things will be, then it opens up a space to start paying attention to the present in a different way in which it starts to become visible things that are beginning to emerge in the present that might be the seeds of what ultimately becomes the future. But exactly. is that... Yeah, that that that's it. Except that except that the ultimately becomes the future is also not a not not a, a decision about what will happen. In other words, whatever you see in the present, let's let's say let's say you know do a, a kind of what if a counterfactual. Let's say you're imagining the peasants are coming out of the the countryside and moving into cities, and it's pretty obvious they need to know how to show up on time, 
to, to the factories and they need to be able to read and write so that they can look at the classifieds and find their way around the subway and, and stuff like that. And you begin to think, well, it'd be really useful if everybody knew how to read and write because uh, it would help them to, to be part of the society, the urban society, the industrial society that they're now in. Um, you don't know what that's going to do. Some people are going to say, you know, that education is going to be good, education is going to be bad. Um, but you see something emerging that changes the, what people can, can do in the present. And so you could imagine, a, you know, that education will be the uh, harbinger of democracy and enlightenment, or you can just imagine that education is going to be an efficient way to make sure that, that, that people listen to the teacher and the boss and show up on time and the children are not on the streets. Um, but it's not what actually happens that's crucial uh, in terms of this, this approach. It's to say what we're imagining changes what we see in the present, and the question becomes how do we implement our values today? Uh, so it's a different approach to creating the future. It's a different approach to legacy and preservation, uh, continuity, and it's much more uh, oriented towards uh, an equal weighting of plans that are uh, that impose legacy systems that impose sunk costs and spontaneity and improvisation that pick up on novelty and emergence and respect the fact that values and conditions will change because that's really the only thing that we know for sure that there will be change uh, and that things will evolve and, and be emergent. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a significant shift uh, from the judgmental kind of uh, utopian uh, approach uh, and it also shifts us away from a, a godlike position for humans which is we're supposed to know the future and then be able to control and create it and make it happen. Uh, so it's a more modest stance towards human agency. Uh, so all of these shifts are, are, are fairly uh, kind of disruptive for the way people think, including a very significant shift in the approach towards uncertainty, which is that in this context, uncertainty is not an enemy, which uncertainty is an enemy of planning, but uncertainty is, is a friend of evolution, complexity, emergence, spontaneity, improvisation, uh, because that uncertainty is what inspires you. Mm-hmm. So, I have six questions competing right now. So, okay. <laughs> um, I'm trying to see which one's going to make it through the gate. I, uh, you, okay. You mentioned collective intelligence. Yeah. And, um, and uncertainty, and I guess, ooh, these are these are big questions, but. Um, the question that keeps coming through is from whence does the future emerge? I don't know if that question makes sense to you. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, this is not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get into the physics of it and kind of the, or the, 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 yeah. the, the, the basic, the theoretical positions. I mean, my, my approach is like I say, a designer and a practitioner's one. And for me, the, the future is, is, is something that, for conscious human anticipation, uh, is always something that we imagine. So it's it's a fiction, and the question is, what kind of fiction is it, and how do we construct that fiction? Uh, and their collective intelligence seems to me to be a crucial ingredient from the point of view of of creating knowledge about something, uh, which is. I don't know your future, you don't know mine, uh, you don't know which fiction makes sense to me, I don't know which fiction makes sense to you, but if we, if we sit down together, we can compare our assumptions uh, and we can think about how we want to 
use those fictions. Some of them we may want to use, uh, you know, to decide to talk on on on, on a, about the topic that we're talking about, and some we may decide to use to to question uh, the way the way we look at the world around us and not know where it's going to take us. Uh, uh, and and it's that ability to not do, uh, to use the the Taoist, right? that ability to step back from thinking that every time we develop a fiction, we need to be able to instrumentalize it for planning or for preparation uh, from a desirable or a preparatory perspective and allowing things to be much more emergent. And so th in that sense, I don't think the future is out there at all. I think the only thing we have is what we do now. Uh, and, and we need to do it from my perspective in a way that is more uh, congruent, more in keeping with the, the actual universe we live in which is not a causal determinist universe, but an emergent universe where there's a lot of, in that sense, mystery, uh, and that there are really unknown unknowns, things that are unknowable in advance. Uh, and, and because they're unknowable in advance, it's, it's, there is no point in trying to invent them. You can't invent them because they don't actually exist in any sense of the word. And so they will happen, whatever they are, I don't know. Uh, but worrying about that now really makes no sense to me. What makes sense to me is to is to understand the present in its more of, in a fuller way. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good place to take a break. Yes, today is Riel Miller, head of foresight at UNESCO and author of the forthcoming book Transforming the Future: Anticipation in the Twenty Twenty. And we'll be right back on Precipice. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is Riel Miller, head of foresight at UNESCO and one of the world's leading authorities on the theory and practice of using the future to change what people see and do. Just before the break, we were talk- we, we've been talking about futures literacy and and using the future in, in different ways. And Riel, I'm, I'm wondering if we can talk about why this matters. What in this, clearly we're in a, a really challenging time in the world. And, and we are, I mean, this show was called Precipice for a reason. We're really standing at the edge in a lot of ways, ecologically, economically, socially. What what matters about how we relate to the future right now? Thanks, Annie. I mean, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say that, that, you know, we should, we should, and I guess it's implicit in what you, you said, we should step away from the precipice. I mean, it, but I, by that, I don't mean doing something particularly dramatic. I just mean, you know, stop seeing it, uh, turn away from it. It's, it, for me, that, 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 that's part of the problem of, of the, of the current moment, which is that, that we're, we're, continuously trying to figure out whether we're safe or not. Uh, we're continuously trying to figure out whether our great-grandchildren will have enough oil or not enough oil, enough climate or, you know, uh, a benevolent climate or not. And that way of thinking about what we're doing now, uh, premised on the idea that some genius or God or some combination of the two will, will divine what the best path is, is, I think, part of the problem. Uh, and the one of the, I mean, there's there's lots of reasons why I think becoming much better at understanding the relationship of of humanity and its conscious capacity to the future. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why I think it, it it's central here. Uh, one of them, which which is uh, I think fa- fairly obvious in in many ways, is that we're currently suffering from poverty of the imagination, by which I mean that, you know, people are afraid of robots, they're afraid of China, they're afraid of fragmentation, they're afraid of climate change, they're afraid of this, they're afraid of that. And that fear is, is, is in some senses, 
based on extrapolation. This will break down. That will break down. This won't work. This won't happen. I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to do that. Uh, this will oppress me. That will disrupt me. Um, and, you know, it's a typical kind of lack of confidence in a sense. Uh, but there, the poverty of the imagination that I'm talking about is a poverty of the imagination and understanding what I would call, but it's been historically phrased in this way, changes in the conditions of change. And that's another one of the reasons why I use the term literacy, is that when a population is literate, it can do different things than when it's illiterate. Uh, when everybody has a cell phone, you can do different things than when people don't have cell phones uh, or collective conditions. And I think one of the huge challenges today is if the collective conditions about the future remain this kind of let's control tomorrow, or let's impose on our grandchildren what we think is best for them, what I call colonizing the future. Um, I think we, we, we sustain, in effect, uh, many of the aspects of the alienation that we suffer from uh, in terms of how we take care of people's health, how we take care of people's learning, how we take care of our relationship to the environment and the, and the ecosystems and the ecosystems that we are. Uh, all of that becomes subject to a kind of, uh, I think, immodest, uh, arrogant uh, kind of uh, imperative that, that I think is, is, is partly to account for, for this, this uh, crisis of identity, this, this, this cognitive dissonance of being continuously disappointed by our, our, our failure to make X great again. It doesn't matter. It can be in France. It can be in the U.S. But this idea that somehow we can do that uh, and that we should be promised that, and that daddy or mommy or some paternal godlike figure will deliver it for us. All of that is is deeply, uh, I think, detrimental to our well-being and happiness now. Mm. So, um, I'm thinking, you've mentioned imagination a few times. Actually, I want to come back to that in a minute. You've mentioned the this sort of understanding of human agency as godlike that we're going to face somebody's going to figure something out and then we're going to be able to impose something on the world and change it and i'm wondering what other understandings of human agency might look like and and or what you think is is maybe a, a more accurate or proper relationship of of human beings to agency Look, I mean, you have this is this is exactly a good example uh, of of the difficulty we have of moving from sort of a flat Earth way of thinking to a round Earth way of thinking. Uh, it's not to criticize the the point you're making, but but I don't know what's proper. My my yeah. metaphysical starting point is that it's better to understand things than not. But the fact that we understand e equals m c squared may kill the species. In other words, understanding is no guarantee of resilience or no guarantee of a better tomorrow. It's just, from my point of view, a better way to be. So I'm interested in being now, and in that sense, uh, we can we can talk about uh, creating the conditions through our maturity, through our through learning, that that alter the conditions in which we live, such that we're much better able to combine planning and spontaneity, improvisation, uh, and and preparation, so that we're not so lopsided in terms of the way we organize our let's make a difference, you're responsible for everybody's future kind of perspective, with a much more emergent and open one, which says we have the confidence in our capacity to use our imaginations to see the present differently. So let's imagine a future without factories, without schools without hospitals but where people are healthy where people are learning where people are producing value 
uh, and, and exchanging it and sharing it. And if we can begin to imagine those things outside of what we consider even desirable or probable, it allows us to discover things in the present that may or correspond to our values and open up new avenues for us to live what we believe in. Uh, that uh, The closest I've come to a sort of visual metaphor for that uh, is something called a murmuration, which has been picked up by a few other people uh, along the line over the last few years. A murmuration is a, is a flock of birds, starlings, flying in a, con- in the, in a, in a sky that, that's wide open, because if there's a barrier, they, they hit it, and it's not, it doesn't work. Uh, but when they fly in an open space, they move up and down and right and left. There's no center. There's no periphery. It's continuously fluid and flowing. It's an amazing kind of visual metaphor for a much more dynamic uh, and non-hierarchical society. So I associate with that word, uh, with, with that image, excuse me, uh, the word heterarchy, which is the idea that in a heterarchical society, uh, we're paying as much attention to hierarchical issues as to heterarchical issues. And by heterarchical issues, the, the simple illustration is that you know, a hierarchy is uh, no high school diploma, a PhD, a poor person, a rich person, there's a hierarchy of wealth. Uh, but is the happiness of a rich person or the happiness of somebody with a diploma better or worse, higher or lower than somebody without? The answer is no, because the happiness is not comparable that way. And so there's many aspects of the world around us that are heterarchical, uh, that, that offer us an opening to seeing things and organizing things in ways which are fairly uh, uncomfortable from the hierarchical perspective. Uh, and if we can begin to, to imagine that kind of murmuration society, it opens up an entirely different set of, of potential uh, actions in the present. But I want to be very clear here. There was no grand starling. There was no visionary starling that said, let's make a murmuration. It was the result of an evolutionary complex emergent process. And so even as I conjure, you know, invoke that image uh, in the sense of something that could illustrate a different way of doing things, I don't think it's something that can be engineered. But I think if we pay attention to the potential of what's going on around us to open up a more uh, confident approach to complexity and uncertainty. We can change our identity from this quasi-godlike engineers of the future to a more open and more uh, in being in the present uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've mentioned imagination several times and and poverty of imagination. And I that really landed for me in the sense that I, you know, I think about what, as a child, I I wrote stories all, all the time, and I would imagine these vast worlds and these very detailed worlds that often were entirely different from the world I lived in, and at some point, probably starting in adolescence, that started collapsing a bit into a sort of consensus reality. And and it's gotten harder and harder unless I'm really invited to. It's it's gotten harder and harder to step into imagination again. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on the role of imagination and all of this and, and what what it it takes uh, in when you're heading into big government organizations or all the places you're doing work to unlock imagination for people. 
it, yeah, this is a critical, critical issue, and it's and it's different in different places. So if I'm running a a session on the future, you know, to two day two day futures literacy laboratory, and I I call them laboratories because I, in my view, they're structured like laboratories, uh, in the same sense of testing hypotheses and putting things together in a structured way. Um, it's if it's the future of Mongolia and Ulaanbaatar, the 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 importance for them of seeing how they use the future in a particular way and therefore they project, for instance, a convergence to industrial society. If you help them to kind of see that they're using that, often it's implicit, then people themselves become more able to say, well, this is the box I've constructed so I can step outside the box. And then the additional element is, is that you can not only see how you've constructed the box and how to step outside it, but you can begin to actually play with the box and construct lots of boxes. Uh, and that's the empowerment aspect of understanding anticipatory assumptions and being able to invent anticipatory assumptions. Now, that's hard. Creativity is not easy. But if you develop uh, kind of the, the, the approach that I think is now very widely understood towards inviting people and creating safe environments and allowing uh, inspiration and serendipity uh, to work, you know, it's 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 as it, it's sometimes the the heuristics can be as as uh, simple and as enjoyable as a card game or a sculpture. Uh, just last week, I was in uh, Finland and we did uh, two days with a group of young people on the future of settlement, human settlement, and they played a role playing game. So they had took a, a whole afternoon and a morning to work up the roles they would play in a learning-intensive society, in other words, in a completely reframed world with no schools, no hospitals, a uh, uh, completely different system of governance, etc. And to play those roles, they had to imagine what it would be like to wake up in the morning and do stuff. And that's, that's a, a, a provocative, uh, difficult, but creative process where the collective intelligence can really be uh, used uh, to create new knowledge from the point of view of the participants, and I want to I want to emphasize uh, one one point here that I think is 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 critical to move us away from the old technocratic perspective. We're talking in many contexts here about specificity and uniqueness. We're not looking for generalities or technocratic knowledge. In other words, it's the the issue. I often call it banal creativity. It's allowing people from where they are, from where they start to imagine and invent, which is of necessity rooted and anchored in their own past, their own present, and their own values, uh, and their own imagination. So these are all parts of the design, uh, when one designs processes for thinking about the future, that need to be taken into account, so that imagination can be something that's turned into uh, uh, something that's accessible to everyone, and that's accessible for everyone in the context of imagining your future, and in that sense, overcoming poverty of the imagination. So, Riel, I imagine that in doing this work, you have to cultivate imagination in your own life, and, and you've written and spoken about the increased capacity to respond to novelty, and I'm wondering, in your own life, how, what, does, what does that look like? Are there things that you do to cultivate these capacities? Oh, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, that's that's uh, I'm I'm a I'm a I've been an international civil servant and a technocrat of sorts for a long time, and uh, and it's true that 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 in that sense, deconstructing and trying to reconstruct this very conventional uh, world that that I inhabit as a, in my work world, 
uh, is in some senses almost easier than doing so in, in, in one's personal life. But I mean, I think right from the get-go, uh, you know, um, in terms of, of where I, 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 I grew up, uh, I grew up internationally and I grew up in different cultures and all the rest, is that uh, I've had a, a, a pretty modest uh, view of certainty right from the beginning <laughs> and that that personally I was I was always open to skeptical and 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 questioning perspectives and 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 realizing that unintended consequences and confusion and serendipity and experiments were were all around me uh, and also I have to say that 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 uh, and I haven't really mentioned this but I mean it, it's part of the 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 culture of uh, birth and death. In other words, uh, there's a, there's quite a fetishism of immortality uh, in the current hegemonic cultures, uh, and birth and death uh, was something that always seemed to me to be uh, uh, part of the richness of life, uh, including the death, obviously. And 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 so all of that was was part of a underlying perspective that I had as a, as a, as a as a person. Uh, and that, of course, I think is only confirmed as you you grow older, in the sense that you have experiences which which point out uh, that prediction and certainty uh, and engineering and constraining and putting people in boxes uh, doesn't really work and doesn't get you very far. So there's moments when I like to try and think of this as a combination of 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 uh, understanding how anticipation, imagination, and therefore the future uh, functions, but also it's about wisdom and experience. Uh, and there's times when I call it an experimentalist approach, which I think includes being experimental in your own life. Um, and I guess I have the good fortune uh, in, in many ways of, of wandering around the world and being invited by people with very different perspectives, which keeps me uh, sort of... Uh, uh, in a humble position, realizing that I don't know uh, and that I can learn and discover, but that there's uh, this unbelievably diverse and emergent universe around us full of mystery and, and, and uh, uh, pain and pleasure uh, that, that's, that's constantly, uh, you know, amazing me. Mm. In doing so much traveling, do you find that different cultures have different levels of comfort with uncertainty and mystery? Uh, absolutely. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an access point in every culture. In other words, we, I mean, that's, that's the, the, in some sense, the, the, the upside of this common universe that we live in. Uh, and, uh, there are definitely very different coping strategies, and even coping is a pejorative ter- term, that there's very different enjoyment strategies. Uh, for the universe we live in, uh, and the 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 narrow aperture that I have, because I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, make it seem bigger than it is. The narrow entry point that I have is really the dominant power structure. Uh, like I said, I'm a civil servant, and I and I've been an advisor and involved with governments and policy, private sector strategy, and for big you know companies and small companies, for schools and for you know uh, small communities, and in all those cases, we're talking about power and we're talking about the the this, the issues that are that are politics, uh, and 
there are very, very different ways of conceiving what humans are capable of. There's very different ways of conceiving uh, what the state is capable of. There's all different degrees of fatalism and, and, and optimism and pessimism and, and fear and, and rituals and you know symbols and, and icons and all the rest. But in the end, if I, I, can, I can always find a collaborative and joint way to negotiate shared sense-making and address the fact that the future is imaginary when it comes to conscious human anticipation. Uh, and so that, that I've found is universal. Mm. I want to I jump back to something you mentioned very early on, which I don't know if you, you said it sort of in passing, and you, you said that a, a process will go differently whether the sun is shining or whether it's raining. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, in talking about collective intelligence and in talking about emergence and talking about uncertainty and, and the complexity of systems, often I find it, there still is a very, we still end up centering very much on the human. And I'm, I'm wondering about where the, the more than human comes in in your understanding of, of these processes. I mean... There's there's a couple of aspects to this. I mean, one is, is that as I said, I, I position myself as a sort of the architect or designer of processes that are jointly created in a local context, and the context is always different. Uh, if the room has sunshine coming in, it's different from a basement, etc. So, as a designer, I try and take into account the emotional and the emotive uh, character of the space, but also the drama of discovery and. Uh, uh, the, the interaction uh, and we have a lot of narrative temp templates that we expect you know first act second act third act you know starts uh, introduction to the characters uh, challenge of the of the 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 kind of uh, mystery or or, or uh, uh, plot twist and then and then conclusion denouement at the end where where people feel satisfied and and, and empowered um, or you know feel good and it depends it depends a great deal uh, in the same way that that you know, you would want to take into account the design of a building in a particular place, how those narrative constructs uh, interact uh, with the people who are participating. And this is, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, this is why I call it a laboratory, because you don't design a biology lab the same way as a chemistry lab. And you don't do a high temperature lab the same as a low temperature lab. And in that sense, it's, this is really very much along those lines. Pushing it further, though, I think, which is what partly you were suggesting, how does this, this connect up to the kind of um, relationship that we have to the, the, the whole environment, the whole context? I think that, that part of the design can, can begin to pick up on those kinds of issues, which is what you say and what you think and how you express things with words is not the only way to take into account what's going on or what you think or what you feel or what you imagine. And so b enlarging the spectrum to include, uh, you know, whether it's the fall or the winter or whether you're in Singapore and it's 30 degrees all year around because you're on the equator, those things are important to be able to, to, to get people to um, uh, uh, respect, articulate, appropriate, exchange, and share. But it's not easy. 
because we live in this quite alienated culture that we have and, and, and we're quite uh, diffident in some ways from the intrusion of, of the natural, what we, you know, so-called natural world, which in and of itself is a, is a bizarre thing to say because, of course, we are of the natural. There, there, is, there is nothing but the natural world. Um, and so all of that is, is, is quite, I'd say, tentative. And that's why I feel very much that, that the kind of work that I'm doing and many others are doing because we're all confronting this, this kind of um, challenge of, on the one hand, uh, taking advantage of the tremendous uh, developments in our symbiotic relationships to tools and to organization, which makes us powerful from the point of view of, of what we can do, uh, but also our desire to embrace our capacity to be free. And so to go beyond oppression and beyond starvation, beyond the, uh, the authoritarian, to be able to express who we are and make our identities something that are meaningful for us and for others. And in the context of that challenge, I think we're, we're, we're inventing things like the microscope of the 21st century, which is about specificity, not generality. And, you know, statistics, which is about generality and common denominators, wasn't invented overnight. It took two centuries and more. And so as we begin to, to develop collective intelligence, knowledge creation, one of the, the microscope of the 21st century, as we begin to understand what it means to be futures literate, to understand anticipation and imagination, uh, all those things are, are part and parcel of an, a challenge and, and, and the emergence uh, of uh, the human condition in the present. Mm. Well, thank you so much for all of that. Uh, we're almost out of time. I'm wondering if someone is excited by this and wants to be able to open up their own thinking about the future, either on their own or in an organization, where would you recommend they start? Well, there, there's there's a lot of, of work going on. There's going to be a big conference on anticipatory systems in, in London in November. It's uh, anticipation.org, I think, or anticipation 2017, something like that. There's quite a bit of material on uh, that's just associated with my name uh, that's out there on the web, and, and that'll connect to a lot of other folks as well. Uh, but this is, you know, we're really at the beginning. There's no one repository. There's no orthodoxy here. Uh, there's a lot of exploration and a lot of people who are trying uh, to 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 exp- to find their own way uh, to to integrate the future more effectively into into the way they think uh, and to also change the relationship that we have to uh, emergence and complexity. Well, thank you so much, Rial, for joining me in conversation and for your continuing groundbreaking work, helping people shift their relationship to the future in ways that might change how we are in the present. My guest today has been Riel Miller, Head of Foresight at UNESCO, one of the world's leading authorities on the theory and practice of using the future to change what people see and do, and author of the forthcoming book, Transforming the Future, Anticipation in the 21st Century. Thanks for being here, Riel. Thanks a lot, Annie. Bye-bye. Next week, Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio will be back with Susan Olesic's Nine Prisons, One Key series, Type 4, The Romantic Individualist. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It has been a pleasure to be with all of you today. Thank you for listening in. Until next time, may we be willing to stand at the edge, unblinking, together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to Pathways to Health for Our World with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. 
Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.